If Jesus wrote a personal letter to Stonebrook, a personal letter to Stonebrook, what would he say? And as I first thought about that question, I thought, well, that might be a bit presumptuous for me to put myself in Jesus' place and speak as Jesus would speak, or to speak as Jesus. But then I thought, well, the Scriptures are the very words of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in His people, and so combining those two things together, we really do get a sense, I think, with the wisdom that God brings through the Spirit, through the Word, we can get a a sense of where we are personally and where we are as a church What might he say? I'd probably say might. I don't know if I'd want to say too strongly. And so this morning in week two of our series on Revelation, we're going to read letters from Jesus Christ to seven churches. We got introduced to those last week, and these letters are really epistles. You've read epistles like Philippians and Thessalonians, very personal letters from Paul. Well, these are personal letters directly from Jesus, through, and he told John what to write. And so, by the way, we encourage everyone to have one of these scripture journals. If you don't have one yet, feel free to get up right now and grab one. There's some little tables here. There's tables in the back. Go ahead and grab one. You're going to want these for our series. I don't mind if you get up right now, so go ahead. Last week, Matt proposed that the central message of Revelation is that believers can overcome the tribulations of life, the difficulties of life even persecution and martyrdom because of the victory won by the Lamb of God, that is, Jesus Christ. And one author said, I appreciated this, and as I reflect on a revelation, I can see its truth. A, a general, we could say that an, maybe an overarching theme of revelation is that it's a holy war. We get a picture of this war both in heaven and on earth between Satan and man and God going back and forth. And of course, in the end, when we read the last two chapters, we know who wins. God wins. That's the point of the Bible, is we know that God wins. He always wins. And this is the great hope of the Christian. And that, I think, is a main part of Revelation, to give the Christians not only caution about what is to come and encouragement, but also hope that it's going to end well for the Christ follower, because it's going to end well for God Himself. And eternity is at stake in this war, and that's why the word conquer, we're going to hear that word multiple times, at least seven times this morning. It's why overcome or conquer is, is in this, this central theme statement that we have here. That's why that's so significant in the Scriptures, is because there's this war going on. And in this 16-week series, we hope to begin to unpack this glorious, perhaps a bit mysterious book and give us some tools in our tool belt that when we read it in the future, we're less intimidated and a little more prepared and with a little bit better understanding. So this morning, we'll begin in the Scripture Journal, begin on page 6. We're going to read chapters 2 and 3. We'll just read it a section at a time. So open up to Revelation chapter 2. We'll read this first letter to a church in the city called Ephesus. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know, that's a key word, I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. 
You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Before we talk about this one letter, I want to talk about all the letters we're going to read because what we've just read is a pattern of what we're going to find in every letter. First, we'll look at these seven churches on a, on a map in modern-day Turkey, be the western half of Turkey, and, and you can see that we'll go in geographical order. That's how Jesus wrote them to Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, and on around in the circle. And then John, from chapter 1, we know he was persecuted for his faith, and he was on exile on this tiny island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. It's actually today owned by the country of Greece, although it's closer to Turkey. Uh, so that's the first thing, is these seven churches are real churches that existed in those days, and Jesus is writing revelation to them. And second, we need to note that each of these seven letters has a consistent pattern in them, and it's very obvious when you read them. First is, Jesus Christ presents Himself with various names and attributes, most of which are found in chapter 1 that we read last week. Second, He offers personal messages to each church. Very personal. He knows what's going on. He says, I know what's going on. He commends them for some things. He rebukes them for others. He calls them all to walk with Him, to hold on to Him. And He calls every church to conquer, to overcome in this spiritual war. Keep pressing on. Life's going to press in on you. Satan will press on into the world. Will Temptation will. False teaching. Hang on. Press on. Overcome. And last, He says to every church, listen. Hear what I'm saying, like in verse 7 here. He says, let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is what Jesus said in the Gospels, which reflects back to Isaiah 6. God is calling His people to stop being so stubborn and to start paying attention. Each letter follows this pattern, and it helps frame the central message of Revelation that we can, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're facing in life, that we can overcome by the power of God, by the power of the victory of, of the Lamb of God. So let's read, let's look now specifically at this first letter to the church in Ephesus. I love verses 2 and 4. Jesus knows. He says, I know. He sees this church. He notices what's going on, and He notices their good deeds, their good works, their hard work, their perseverance. They've endured hardship. Such noble qualities here. And I think the same could be said about Stonebrook, about so many of you, you've, you've endured, you've worked hard, you've suffered through many things. And then Jesus also sees their hatred of evil. There are evil things going on, false teachers. Jesus commends them that they've noticed these things, they've rejected them. They love truth, they hate what's wrong. 
But then verse 4 strikes a very sad chord. He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Or another translation says, you've lost your first love. Really saying the same thing from a slightly different point of view, but I think what he's saying is, you, you used to love God and you loved His people, but you don't anymore. You've given that up. I don't think that reflects Stonebrook. I see a lot of love here, but it reflected the, heart, the hearts of the people in Ephesus. And in summary, you know, they, they, they hated what was false teaching. They loved right teaching, but they didn't love. You could say that they, they loved truth, but they were loveless. And that's a sad commentary. They're standing firm in what's true, but not in love. It's like in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says you can have all these gifts and you can give all your possessions away to the poor and have this great faith, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. And Jesus' conclusion is so startling. He says in verse 5, he says, If you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. And we know from chapter 1, lampstand equals the church. He says, I'm going to remove your status as a church. You might still be together, but you will not be my church anymore. And that is an alarming warning. They were at risk of not even being a church belonging to Jesus. And I think there's a warning here for every church since this one, that loving God And loving His people is so foundational to the faith, to our calling as a church, that if we fail in this, we could question whether we are truly a church at all. Yes, we should hate what is false and love what is true, but we also must grow year by year in loving our God, keeping that love we had at first and our love for others. Now let's read Jesus' second letter to a church in a town called Smyrna. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So from verse 9, we see that this church was suffering from persecution, and they were poor. Probably it means financially poor. They just—they didn't have a lot of wealth in their church. And they may have thought, you know what, we're, we're, we, we don't amount to anything. We're just nothing. We're suffering. We don't have money. We're just kind of nobodies. But Jesus' response is so heartwarming. He sees them very differently than they see themselves. And he says to them, he says to them, I, you may see yourselves as poor, but I see you as rich. Rich in me. And then he says, you know, you're about to suffer even more. 
Some of you will be thrown into prison for 10 days. I think 10 days is probably symbolic, meaning a short time. But for whatever time frame, you're going to be suffering. He, he warns them. And in the face of that, he just, he just urges them, be true to me. Like you have been, be faithful to me. Hold on to me. Don't stop trusting me. And if you do, I'll give you the crown of life. There's going to be riches untold on the other side of life that we'll read later on in chapters 21 and 22. And whether this crown of life is real, a physical crown, or symbolic, I think the larger point is Jesus himself will reward them for their faithfulness to him. He will never forget. He will honor this church for holding on to him. And surely that strengthened this church in this town of Smyrna. And I wonder if Christians today all over the world who are suffering persecution severely, especially in major parts, huge parts of Africa and Asia, would relate to this letter more than we do. There's a map here from a, from a, a ministry called Voices of the Martyrs, and they publish this in the darker brown countries in Africa and Asia and the, the mid-brown colors are countries that are either hostile to the gospel or severely restricting the gospel. And if you know the population uh, on the world, that's a major portion of the world's population. Christians there know they would relate to this letter. And it would, Jesus' letter here would strengthen them. Yes, maybe imprisonment's coming, but let's, let's hold true. Let's hold fast because he's going to win. He's going to give us the crown of life. Let's go to the next letter, verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who received it. First, I have to say, the name Pergamum makes me think I'm in chemistry class, and I just got done reading the periodic table. You know, titanium, chromium, and Pergamum. That's what it sounds like. Well, anyway, the city was known, and back to reality now, the city was known for its idols. Ancient historians can tell us they was known for its idols. And that's probably why Jesus says, you live where Satan's throne is. It's like the home base of Satan is in your town. It's a dark, dark city. And these Christians are in the middle of it. And one of their own, Antipas, was killed for his faith. And I think of Genesis chapter 19, where a man named Lot was living in a very dark city named Sodom. One righteous man in this very dark city, that's probably what these Christians were, were facing. 
And there are a few. And so most of them are hanging on. They're doing well. But there's a few in the church that are holding on to false teachings. The teaching of Balaam, which is referencing back to the Old Testament, as so much of Revelation will. Some false teachings that are going on that are leading some in the church astray into immorality and idolatry. Jesus calls them back to Himself to repent. So as I think about us in Ames in 2023, I wouldn't say our city is at the level of Pergamum with such severe darkness and idolatry, the headquarters of Satan. But every city in the world has some challenges, some darkness about it, some false teaching, some lures. And are we helping one another in those temptations to fight against them, to be aware of them? Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. They're growing, they're progressing. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, apparently some false teacher who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will, strike, <clears throat> I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the, who keeps my works and to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter, quoting Psalm 2 here. He will shatter them with, like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So this, the, the city, the church in Pergamum had a few people straying, but now this church in Thyatira has many, and their situation is much more serious. This city, we know from history, this city was famous for trade guilds, and that would be whatever your occupation was, you had like a, a local union or a club that you would belong to kind of a professional uh, union. And many of those guilds had patron deities. They had false gods that they would worship. And part of being in those guilds was to serve those false gods, was to commit sexual immorality, was to worship idols, offer sacrifices. And so for a tradesman to be in good standing with his guild, he had to participate in those things. And so now if you're a Christian in that trade... You have to decide, will you compromise or will you say no and risk your own finances? 
So it's quite possible here in this church, many were compromising their faith due to these economic and social and religious pressures they were facing to stay in good favor with the local guilds. But in verse 23, Jesus says, the situation is so serious, I'm going to come. If they don't repent, I'm ready to strike some of these idolaters dead. And it reminds me of Acts chapter 5, where a, a couple, man, a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, lied to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit, and the Lord struck them dead, and fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of it. In verse 18, Jesus describes Himself as having eyes like a fiery flame, as He's described in chapter 1. Such descriptions like this that we'll see about Jesus in chapter 1 and all the way through the, the, the revelation, we, we see though we know He's loving and kind, we also realize He's not one to be trifled with. When we start playing around with idolatry and immorality and other things like that, Jesus is very serious with us. So for us in Ames, Iowa, are there cultural, economic pressures that we're facing and succumbing to? Are there compromises that we've made that we need to repent of, either individually or even corporately here as a church? Chapter 3, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit and the seven stars, the angels. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. In this letter, Jesus has little positive to say. There's only a few that are following Him. Most of them are doing badly. They think they're alive. They're proud. They think they have life. But Jesus says, no, you are actually dead. You have no life. We know that Sardis, back at this, in this time frame, was a proud and self-reliant city. They thought they were secure, that no one could conquer them. And I wonder if the church had taken on that same spirit. They thought, you know what, we're fine. Nothing can harm us. And they were deceived. And sadly, only a few out of the whole church, how many people, 100, 300, 500? Only a few people. We're walking with Jesus. And he was ready to bless them. And may the Lord help us to stay humble. I, I think overall we are. We're, we're not like Sardis. But there's, there's warnings there that, that apply to every church. Don't, don't go that way. 
Stay humble. Be alert to the, allure, the, the allurement of sin. Be watchful of the tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, where we think, yeah, we're alive when we actually might be dead. The next letter, verse 7, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. We see in chapter 21 and 22, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Every church should strive to be like the Philadelphians. Though they didn't have much power, maybe they didn't feel very significant or influential. Again, Jesus views them like another church very differently. In verse 8, he knows how they're working for him, how they have so little power of their own, but he's given them what seems to be an open door. It seems to be an open door for the gospel, for evangelism, that no one is going to be able to shut. And I love verse 12, all who conquer, all who endure in faith, Jesus says, I will make you pillars in my eternal city, in my eternal temple. And all this seems to indicate that they will have a a position of strength in the kingdom of God, like like a pillar holding up a building. This is in in the eternal world. They're going to have a glorious position of strength and honor forever and ever. And if you want more, Jesus says to those who endure, he was going to write his name, the name of his father, the name of the city, his own name on them. And when we write our name on something, it's it's really an identifier that this belongs to me like a book or a possession. Jesus wants to write his name on you, that you are his, you belong to his. He'll never let you go. What glory awaits all who know Jesus and walk with Him? For the ones who conquer, who hold on to Jesus. And may we take heart, surely, like the way this church did when they read this. And by the way, when we hear of conquering or enduring or holding on, you're going to see that a lot. You've seen them already in these seven letters. You'll see them a few other times later on in the book. But we need to know enduring in faith is not what saves us. God's grace by faith in Christ is what saves us. Enduring by faith, though, is the evidence that God has saved us. It's the fruit 
But our, our faith in God, that's the root of our salvation. So it's important we, we, dis, we distinguish between those two things. It's the mark, the, our endurance is the mark of a believer. Let's read our last letter to the church in Laodicea. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I conquered, same word, and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, these seven letters end on a bad note. Jesus has little to nothing positive to say to them. In verse 15, their faith, their works are merely lukewarm. We know from history, again, the city of Laodicea was known for its terrible drinking water. They had to pipe water in. By the time it got there, it wasn't hot or cold, which you'd rather have one or the other. It was just lukewarm. It was polluted. They would have read this letter from Jesus and known instantly, oh, I know what that means. They weren't following Jesus with a heart that's hot for him. They weren't cold either. They weren't obviously rejecting Jesus. They were trying to play this middle ground, trying to play neutral, trying to think, well, can I have the best of both worlds? Can I have the benefits of Jesus and the benefits of all this world has to offer? Of all the sin and the worldly pleasures. But what is hopeful to me and even remarkable is that Jesus hasn't given up on them. In verse 18, he says, come to me, come to me, find me. Let me give you true heavenly gold. Let me clothe you with my robes of righteousness. Let me open your blind eyes. All that they truly need is found in Jesus. And in verses 19 and 20, he just lovingly calls, but earnestly calls them back to himself because he loves them. Such encouragement and hope we can take from this letter today, even if we have strayed far from Jesus, even if we're in this middle world where we don't really truly love him and we kind of love the world a little bit more, we're lukewarm and he wants to vomit us out of his mouth, Jesus still invites us back to himself. There's hope in the gospel. There's hope in his grace. 
And when we come back, he says to us, I will give you the right to sit on my throne, to reign with me and the Father forever and ever in my eternal kingdom. So let's, let's take a step back now and look at these seven letters that we just read. Compared to some of the strange and intriguing visions we're going to read in the remainder of the book, these two chapters are pretty tame. They're a little bit easier to get our arms around. But let's get a quick summary of what we just read. First, let's summarize. the seven. Jesus gave seven descriptions of himself in these letters. I've got them all listed here. He describes himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. And it just means he's the eternal one. He is from of old. He always was. He always will be. He has the two-edged sword. It's reflecting justice, that he will bring justice to this world. He's the holy one, the true one. In him, there's nothing corrupt or dark. And most of these descriptions and these names of Christ are found in chapter 1 and some in chapter 22, which, by the way, chapters 1 and 22 are really bookends to this whole book. And we're going to find there's really a unity. Sometimes we'll read some wild things and we don't know what they mean. We have to hold on to the beginning and the end and remember the purpose of the book, lest we get too lost in all the details. But this Jesus described here is the one we worship. He's the one we are to set, that these seven churches are to set their hopes on. They're the ones, he, they're to, he's the one they're to turn back to. He's the one, even in chapter 1, it says their endurance is in Christ. Even their ability, their power to endure, to keep going is in Him. When we want to quit, when we wonder who's in charge in this insane world, when we, sin, when we think that sin will deliver all that it promises, but when we, when we think of Jesus, when we read of Jesus in these seven, in these seven letters, we remember, oh yes, he's the one who's conquered through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. He and the Father, the one who's on the throne, they've conquered. If I'm on his side, I win. That is the overarching theme of Revelation. And if we keep that in mind, this, this unusual book will help change us through the work of the Spirit. And Jesus give you a summary of the personal messages to each church. There's quite a variety, isn't there? To one church, they love the truth, but they're actually loveless. Another church has compromised themselves in an idolatrous city. Another church, Jesus promises power even though they're weak. And I wonder, corporately, do we as Stonebrook find ourselves relating more to one church than another? I find a little bit of a mix of them all. I think overall I'm encouraged by where Stonebrook is. I think we're doing well, but we, we want to keep pressing on. And then in every letter, he offers eternal promises to every Christian and every church who conquers, who walks with him, who repents of their sin, who turns back to him, to hear, who listen, who aren't stubborn like Israel was in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6, to them who give the tree of life and the crown of life and all these other eternal rewards that you'll read about mostly in chapters 21 and 22. 
So when these churches were tempted to quit or despair or turn to sinful ways, they were called once again to look to the Lamb, to hear His promises, to remember them, to cling to them, to know it will be worth it in the end. The Lamb of God has won the victory, and may we cling to Him regardless of the suffering, whether it's just our everyday suffering, health problems, or some of the temptation that these churches were facing, even persecution, If we cling to the Lamb, we will win because He has won. So what should we prepare for as we read Revelation in the coming months? Let me give you two brief things. One is prepare to learn about Jesus Christ when you read this book. We've already learned so much about Him in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And we're going to read about a lot of things that can shake us, that we wonder what is going on, some things that will confuse us. But to know Jesus Christ better, to know Him more intimately, is going to be critical for us as we read this book, as we face challenges in the future. So study Jesus. Study His names here, the descriptions about Him, how He acts, what He does. Go back to the Gospels, read things about Him. Know Jesus, and you'll do well. And just pray that your eyes would be open and know Him better. Pray for your small group, your friends, your household. Pray for our church. And come prepared each week to learn more about Jesus and to know Him better. Second, God wants to prepare us to follow Him through our trials. That's part of what you can expect through this book. God is preparing us. Though we may not be suffering to the level of some of these churches that we read about or some of our churches in our, with our brothers and sisters in Af- many parts of Africa and Asia, we're not experiencing some of those things. Still, God is preparing us to walk daily through our trials. What He's laid before us, will we walk with Him in faithfulness? He's going to use our trials to shape us, to make us more like Christ in our character and conduct. So how do we prepare ourselves? One is know Jesus. We've already, I just talked about that. He's our life. We have to know Him. We don't need to fear. He rules the world. But two, we need to listen. We need to hear, like Jesus said so many times in these letters. We need to have a humble heart and respond to what He says in this book. And also, we don't want to waste our trials. God, every trial we're encountering today is an opportunity for us to know Him and to walk with Him. And if if we deny those things, if we grumble and complain and turn aside, we're wasting the moment that we have to walk with our Savior. So to wrap it up, we, we can learn some amazing things from this mysterious yet intriguing book that we're going to spend 14 more weeks on. And I think it's, it's important to know that in chapter 1, and we see here in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is walking among His churches. He's not distant, off, you know, paying no attention. He's not disinterested in what's going on at Stonebrook or other churches around this world. He is engaged. He's walking with us. And so in this book, He's calling us to walk with Him, to trust Him, to not compromise what we believe and to conquer by His power and by His strength and holding on to the promises of glory that we will receive at the end of time that we'll read about repeatedly in Revelation. So let's pray together.
We pray this morning to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You have revealed yourself to us in this remarkable book. Revealed as glorious, powerful, just, and merciful. Would you graciously open our eyes to know you better? Would you soften our hearts to humble us before you that we might respond? Would you grant us faith to believe your precious, amazing promises that you give here in these chapters? And Lord, would you give us strength to hold on to you? And we know that you'll hold on to us but help us to hold on to you until the end, whatever we face in the coming days. In the name of Jesus, amen.